0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work.
1: This archival recording of Design Matters took place in April of 2016. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with composer Nico Muley about his music and about the musicians who interpret it. I always feel like they appreciate something that's detailed on the
2: page to indicate that I know what I'm talking about, but with room for them to continue the conversation when I'm dead. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: We're listening to music written by Nico Muley, who composes chamber music, orchestra music, operas, music for ballet, film music, you name it. If we had to sample from all the types of music he's written, and he's only 34, we'd be here for quite some time. Nico Muley is a rare bird among contemporary classical composers. He's hip, and he has fans under the age of 30. Maybe this has something to do with his collaborations with Bjork, Grizzly Bear, and Ira and Philip Glass, and his efforts to reach beyond the classical music tradition. He joins me now to talk about his music and his life. Nico Muley, welcome to Design Matters.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: Nico, is it true that you think the score of Star Wars is like a yak carrying people? (laughs)
2: Did I say that somewhere? Well, I mean, it it, it does do some heavy lifting, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, when I first, first started doing my research on you, it was before Star Wars, The Force Awakens came out. And you said this
2: before The Force Awakens came out. So I was wondering how you felt about the new score. I mean, it's almost more heavy lifting now um, because we don't know what's going to happen with all these new themes and all these new people. right? And so the trick that that score does, and when I say heavy lifting, what I mean is it's a kind of blunt object, right? It's like, this is evil because this music tells you before dun, you know dun, exactly dun, 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 so, dun. and that's an example of the, of the music knowing the plot before the people who are in it that's so uh. th- so that that's what i mean it's sort of it's sort of pulling pulling things rather than being pulled by it or floating over it
0: i sometimes get very freaked out by music that accompanies television shows or movies that I'm watching on television or on my computer where I have the real control to adjust the volume. It's always
2: the wrong volume. And
0: they're trying to get the sense of thrill and anticipation up so high that the music becomes
1: unbearable.
2: This is true. And I think a lot of what happens now is that people who are making this kind of media, particularly in TV, get addicted to these big sort of Wagnerian huge film scores. And then when they're they're in the edit room, right, they're temping the TV show with these gigantic expressions of kind of, as you say, like tension or romance or whatever. So you end up with these kind of slightly overblown or overbearing scores, right? When you actually just need a sort of a husky, you've got a yak.
0: And there are times when even just silence might be
2: enough. You think? I mean, that's <laughs> this is this is always the thing. It's when you when you think about the great, 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 great film scores, it's like *Rosemary's Baby*, yes. right? Where it's like there's a little voice here, there's a little trumpet there, but like really nothing much. And happens. that's scary. It's scary. It's real scary.
0: You were born in Vermont. True story. You spent your childhood between an 18th century farmhouse in the little town of Tunbridge, Vermont, and a home in Providence, Rhode Island. Where did the name Nico come from? I have this romantic fantasy you were named for the singer and Warhol superstar.
2: I, I, wish, it were, I wish it were so. Um, it's just Nicholas, but with the French spelling. And Nico ah. is like a, a pretty, and my, my mother's family is French. And so Nico is one of these sort of useful, every country in the world knows how to pronounce it with the exception of the United Kingdom, where I'm forever Nico.
0: Ooh, okay. I know
2: it's bad. It, I think it's something about going from the long e to the o that they feel is like pornographic in the mouth.
0: <laughs> in addition to being a French, your mother is a painter and a teacher, and your dad is a filmmaker. That must have influenced you quite profoundly.
2: Yeah, it was. A, there were a lot of ideas going in and out of the house. My my father is one of these sort of eclectic um, filmmakers. So he he worked a lot in Egyptian archaeology, but then in stone cutting, which I hope we talk about later because I'm obsessed with it, and then in sort of caves in South Africa. So he was one of these sort of documentarians for hire, um, and as a result knows sort of 82 percent of the available information about like 400 things.
0: When you were seven, I read that you spent some time living near an archaeological site in Egypt where you were chased by a pack of wild dogs. <laughs> is this is true? true. It's totally true. <laughs> so how did that happen and how did you get away?
2: I think my dad was working on a dig. I don't specifically remember, but the structure of this town was essentially, it was families of tomb robbers who had robbed a tomb, sold the things and moved in. And this had happened, you know, in the last 300 years or something. So it was one of these vertical necropoli. And for some reason, my parents were down or my mother was down there and I was up here. And, you know, as is the way... In a lot, a lot of the developing world, there's just randomly dogs everywhere. Yes, kind of. Yes. With their own itineraries, but sometimes they just decide sort of that you might have something of interest to in them. So I probably had like an apricot or something, and then I was running really, 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 really quickly. And it's it's a kind of for me, it's a sort of abstract memory. But of course, for my mother, it's this kind of you know grim's fairy tale. Like not, it's a very specific memory for her.
0: Is that when she created the painting? She titled "Evil Nico."
2: That's a different painting.
1: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a larger
2: scale painting. The, the dogs, the dogs of Gurna. I actually have, and she painted that episode, and I have it in my. Um, I have it next to the mirror that I used to get dressed in the morning. Essentially, so, so you I,
0: look at yourself being chased by dogs every day. It's
2: actually the sound of me being chased by dogs. So there's no, there's no, there's no physical depiction of anything. There's this kind of blue space, and then there's this kind of sonic. Representation, which strangely, actually, in my in my mother's shorthand, her sound waves look like good Wi-Fi signal. So, wow. so there's a sort of that which pleases me. I love nothing more than full full bars.
0: That's amazing. And so, what is the portrait, Evil Nico, depicting?
2: That depicts um, me as a young boy holding the hand of what would be the shape of my mother if she if she hadn't been erased into the landscape that surrounds her. Um, the, the symbolism of which you can you can now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Th- think about for a minute. Okay, so what <laughs> should we
0: talk about? The symbolism of that or stone cutting?
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, I'm I'm at your I'm at your service. Well, let's
0: talk a little bit about stone cutting. You said you wanted to talk about it. So, we what just, do you want just, to talk about? I was just
2: thinking you know, one of the things my father made when, when I was much 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 younger was he made a film about a family of stone cutters in Newport, Rhode Island uh, who own this thing called the John Stevens shop, which is apparently the most continuously family-owned business or something. Fudd Benson and his son Nick Benson, who have been carving stone for you know two generations now. And it's an unbelievable place because it's, it's this combination of the gorgeousness of typography and the gorgeousness of a font combined with the very physical manual labor of, of what it takes to make those cuts. That, to me, is like a, a completely fascinating intersection because so much of what I do is you know, based on this on, on musical notation, which once upon a time would, would have been very, very physical in terms of, you know, you write it by hand and then the process of engraving. And it's still called engraving, but of course we're just doing it on a computer. Right. So to see people arranging text for, you know, memorials or, or the name of a building or gravestones or, you know, whatever, it's, it's, again, this combination of art and function that I find, like, borderline erotic.
0: I do too. Don't uh, you think? Uh, I mean, if, absolutely. You see,
2: if you see a great R... Do you know what I mean? It's just the best. Are you kidding? Right, or the number nine. It's like the best thing in the world. Or the
0: sharpness of an E, a lowercase e. Yeah, exactly. That curve and the sharpness. Oh,
2: my God. I mean, there's so much to love about it. And then you realize there are rules about it, but so much of it has to be eyeballed. In a crazy way. Oh, like yeah,
0: because you, you can actually center something and it won't look centered. It won't look centered,
2: exactly. Yeah. And this is, this is true in music as well, right, where it's like what we refer to as classical proportions, right, in Mozart. Like, I think if you obey those rules, perfect, 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 nothing actually sounds, if there's something off about it, it sounds like something's wrong. And so you kind of have to back up and look at it. But I think, again, what, what makes me so happy about Stone is that you can't mess up. I mean, you can, you know, you can sort of trace Well, if you them.
0: mess up, you have to figure out a way to make it part of right. the actual piece. Or either
2: you add a little, exactly. you know, A
0: flourish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a ligature. A ligature. <laughs> yeah. I
2: mean, ligatures. I mean, it's every time I go to these, you know, those, those places where they dress up like it's the 17th century. Yes. I went a million years ago to St. Mary's in Maryland where my boyfriend went to college. And there was a guy running the print shop there. You know, again, was sort of fake seventeenth century introducing himself. So really of cor- cute little hat. Right? Yeah, exactly. Those triangle so, hats. so of course, I like immediately was like, I need to see every ligature. I need to see the FL ligature. I want Ooh. to see when this came from here. And because he knew, because certain ligatures only come up in like one psalm, right? So, you, you, but it's like, did they have it? Did it come? Did they make it special? Did they, were they using? it? Were they not? Because if those frontis pieces, especially. Oh yeah. Well, they're yeah. They're, the, they're the ones that were really decorative. Super decorative, but sometimes you can tell when it was made because they didn't have a ligature. Yeah. In that place. Yes. It's so fabulous. And anyway, it makes me insane. And I think about it like, you know, four hours of every day instead of <laughs> writing music.
0: Well, I understand you sang in a choir at Grace Episcopal Church in Providence. Was that your first foray into music?
2: More or less. I was sort of simultaneously when I was maybe, let's say, between eight and 11, um, I'd started playing the piano because there was a piano in our in house. In the basement, right? In the basement of our house in Providence. So basically, I, I sort of took piano in the way that kids take piano. You just kind of go once a week and, you know, devote yourself to it as much as much or as little as you as you can. Um, and then a friend of a friend said her son was doing this, was in this choir and that it was kind of strange and interesting and, and I should check it out. And I went, it was very strange because it belongs to a tradition of music making that's pretty specific to England, um, which is this sort of chapel tradition of music that happens at certain times of the day and that music that happens at certain times of the year. And it's a sort of unbroken chain from, like, the 1500s. And so to find that in Providence in, in the 90s, even though I didn't know what it meant, it felt weird and special. Um, and I got kind of addicted to it. And I, got, I certainly got addicted to that music, particularly the music of the sort of English um, Renaissance.
0: In the video that I watched wherein you talked about the piano in your basement. You also talked about feeling like you came to composing rather late and talked about how there are children that are born with a bow, as you put it, mm. or playing Chopin as soon as they come out of their mother's womb. Really? Were you that late? Do you consider yourself that late? Was a, it a-,
2: a little bit. Let me, let me put it this way. There exist structures for um, preteen kids to study music that are, that are pretty almost professional. Um, and I think if you go to any big city in the country, you'll find a lot of such places where it's like, you know, it'll be like Saturday school and Sunday school and there'll be a kind of rigid way to play the violin, essentially.
0: So that would be taken by a, a young child whose parents thought that they had some right. natural talent. And, sometimes, and- the,
2: sometimes the kids are into it and, and, you know, that's a different a different argument. But but essentially, all I know is when I turn up at Juilliard a lot of people had been at it for much longer. I have a friend who plays in the Boston Symphony and her house is covered with pictures of her at the age of like two and a half playing the violin and you think, wow. you know, it's really crazy.
0: But how do, you, mean, how do you bring a, a natural sense of joy to playing when you're sort of forced to play at that you know,
2: age? This, this is an argument that I've never quite bought because here's the thing, playing music is so awesome that even if you're forced to do it, it's mm. great. I, I think of it in the sense where if you can kind of, get over that initial resistance, which I think a lot of kids have anyway. To anything, to anything any, they don't know anything. how to do. Doesn't matter. Adults too. Adults too, exactly. I've never quite bought this, like, you were tortured and, and made to play the clarinet. I mean, yes, you were probably tortured and made to play the clarinet, but you were also tortured and made to, like, you know, learn trigonometry or something. And we all make it through somehow. But, but at some point in your life as a child, I hope, you think I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, Mom, I hate you, Dad, I hate you, Clarinet teacher, and then something happens, mm-hmm. right? And when that thing happens, and from that point on, you're you're done, like you're you're in it forever. And I think a lot of kids, even I, I saw this again a lot at at Juilliard, who definitely would have been you know had been locked up in a basement in Korea since they were two years old, and then but they had that moment at age eleven, and it was like okay now I'm now I'm in this to win it. What was the first piece of music you ever bought? The first major purchase was the complete works of Stravinsky which came in a box, sort of a lunchbox-sized thing. And I remember I bought it at Tower Records um, in Boston, and I felt like a really big deal.
0: I understand that you also have a guilty pleasure for the Indigo Girls.
2: Totally. So whenever, whenever my boyfriend and I make a sort of domestic plan about, like, who's going to take the dog to the thing and who's going to order the CSA, you have to have the Indigo Girls on. It just gives a sort of blessing over, over the whole procedure. <laughs> You should try this. It works really, really I well. I actually
0: will, because I could use a little help in, in that Cause department. Because those conversations,
2: those conversations, you certainly can't have Wagner on. Do you know what I mean? And you, can't, yeah. and you can't have anything that implies any kind of menace. You need a sort of... <laughs> no
0: law and order SVU. You know, you can't
2: have SVU. Exactly. exactly. You, you need a kind of Western mass, like, we're all in it together kind of power of two absolutely, situation.
0: Absolutely. I read that you were fascinated by the emotional function of church music as opposed to that of concert music as you were growing up and you said that church music is more directional music pointing upward and the satisfaction of a job well done is the only one you're going to get when you finish the piece you don't look at the audience and smile you don't graciously bow and the composer vanishes too in addition to the performers if you are really good you disappear is that fulfilling to you? do you want to disappear? enormously feel- enormously. That, why? And that,
2: I think what it is is that you? You've made something that that hits that sweet spot where it's where it's so beautiful that you don't think you don't think that lamp is great. You think this room is great. You think okay. my environment is great. My day is better because I'm in this situation. On further consideration, then you can say, "Oh, that's because this in combination with this." But with, with church music, you know, the idea is that you don't approach it like a play where you're you're sort of in an analytical sense, right? The great thing about church is that there is one thing that's happening, right? With complexities, but there's one story, right? And it's what's well, sort of like, you know, do, do unto others and the rest is commentary, right? Mm. So, you, so you see this in, in, man, in many traditions. And, and so church music is not designed to be about itself. And it's not designed to be an art that references itself. It's meant to create and direct an atmosphere that's for a play to which we always know the plot, right? Church music can do something in one second that, is tricky to explain. For instance, if you're talking about Christmas, right, you need to taste a little bit of the gall of East of Good Friday on Christmas, right? You have to look at the baby and be like, he's gonna die, right? In 33 years and a couple months, It's a rap, right? And the music can do that in one second. How? Well, what you do is you just, you shimmer on a note or you lean into a piece of text. And this can be written into the music itself or into the performance. And in the same way that if it happened in a film score, and this is is a, a vulgar analogy, but if it happened in a film score, you'd know it. Right okay, you would totally know' you'd be like, "Whoa, there was and you wouldn't say it's because he put that harp note on the d sharp like whatever. It, you just you would feel a tautness you recognize about it. it, yeah, with church music, I feel like because again that we we know the plot, so so you're hanging you're hanging your art on this on this structure that we already appreciate, so there's room to be really weird and stylized, and that's that's when music starts getting interesting, right, where you have these these insane French. Composers who, at a certain point um, in the 12th century, just decided, "What if we took these notes that were normally melodic and, and made them last for like a minute each?" Right? They gothicized notes. I mean, it's a crazy. Sounds right? like
0: Glenn Branca.
2: It, it's a, it, it's way, but way, way, you know, way like before may, many <laughs> But when <laughs> right. you think of it too, it's like in the same thing. The same thing that happens in ecclesiastical architecture, right? That doesn't happen in vernacular architecture, where it's like let's experiment with these highly stylized lines, or let's experiment with this is especially true in the the Islamic world because there's not much depictive art, right? So you say, okay, we have to make the letters do the joyful expression, right? So when you write a bismillah, you make it, and all the letters are huge and all the vowels are these like gigantic shapes and the whole thing turns out to be the shape of a peacock. Um, So that's, I think that for me is is the fun of sacred art.
0: I've had a number of musicians on Design Matters over the last year and I keep trying to find an answer to what i consider to be one of the world's biggest mysteries where does the music come from how does it arrive to you is it a melody that you hear is it a series of notes is it fully composed how does something arrive to you
2: hmm i think that the minute i figure that out is the minute i'll stop stop having to do it i mean i think each expression has its own way i think if your life includes a space for music you'll figure out how to put it there, I think. So, and what I'm, what I'm saying practically is a deadline. And what I'm saying slightly less practically is you basically imitate what, what you've seen before. You basically take what your teachers have left you. You take what, you know, in your experience that you heard this thing, whether or not it was in a concert hall or it was at some in the distance or someone humming on the subway, you, you collect these things and they become part of an arsenal of exactly this, which is filling up silence, which is which is molding around or out of silence. So I think, you know, if you want to super romanticize the act of being a musician or the act of being a composer, that's one path.
0: Okay, but if you're writing two boys mm. and you're writing a piece for one of the boys to sing and they are singing, when I was 16. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, where did that happen? Mm. How did that happen that's, in your head? <laughs>
2: that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, for, for something like that, I mean, I... I I know, I know I'm giving you more practical an answer than, than the one that you want, but essentially you look at the text, right? And you say, what is the goal of the, what, what are we doing here? Like, how are, how are we getting from A to B? Where's this piece of music going to deliver us in the time that it has to perform such so a delivery, right? So it's like three minutes long. And from there you sort of zoom way out and you see the architecture of the journey of the thing, right? So whatever the itinerary is, which, you know, in like a classical Italian aria, right, it would kind of go up and then down. Or just straight up.
1: <laughs> um,
2: that's you know that's one path. and then and then from there, once you have the structure, you kind of ease your way into pitches and see what works and see what doesn't work. And I think, you know, usually it doesn't work, and then you and then you kind of you kind of get it right. I mean, it's it's a the the, the mystery of that moment is is very energizing actually because you I mean it's creating something out of nothing. It's creating something out of nothing. The other thing though is that with classical music, there are a lot of things that are precomposition or precompositional exercises. And what that is, it's ranging from what I what I would say like going to the supermarket to really elaborate like Thai mise en place. Right? And I think that, you know, there are schools of modernist thought that essentially you just do like 7000 days of mise en place and then do fussy shit with it and then it's like and then that's the piece essentially is that is this kind of explosion of the content that you've generated in advance and that that music can be beautiful and great and wonderful and i find not particularly spontaneous but that you know again this this is a great thing there's another thing where you kind of buy all the things. I would and so for me it's like it, that's usually a process of discrimination, right? You say I'm not going to do this in this piece. I'm not going to use this in this piece. I'm going to use these things. The challenge is how to make something satisfying out of what you have. And then from there, that's when your technique comes into play, right? So so you do a little bit of precomposing and then you kind of figure it out. I think thinking about it in terms of food is really useful actually because like for instance You know, sometimes you want to, like, follow a recipe from, like, the food lab or whatever and do exactly what he says in, like, the weird Marmite. And then other times you just want to go to the store and buy, like, six things and then see what happens when you get home. Um, So I think, you know, at least in my practice, music can go in either one of those directions.
0: What's interesting about music as an art form, if you compare it to, say, art, design, literature, somebody writes a book, they've written the book. Nobody is going to perform the book. Mm-hmm. They can maybe read it out right. loud or they could be participating in some sort of book club um, and art the same way. You know, as Joni Mitchell once famously said, nobody ever asked Vincent van Gogh to play A Starry Night Again, man. Right. With your music, people are constantly playing it and interpreting it. What is what is it like for you to create something and then hand it over to somebody else? to?
2: It's surreal. Um, I, I was just talking about this the other day. My my friend Stephen Karam is a, is a playwright and he just had this play open on Broadway and the anxieties he was having about that were very similar to ones that I have, right? Where it's like essentially you do this thing and, and your craft is on the page and then all of a sudden other people are do, are doing stuff to it and it's doing stuff to them and things are happening and, and essentially you, you've you kind of vanished. Um, it's a weird feeling, but it's, it's one that you sort of get almost used to. I think what... Is tricky about it is that you have to do two things at once. The actual document that you produce, right? Being a composer, the the, the physical job and, and the and the practical job is you're given a pile of money and you send back a pile of paper. That's literally, it's literally all. It's
0: really paper for paper. It's paper for paper,
2: right? It's yeah. just here's this and here's this. So and it, or it's like you know Citibank wires in PDF out. <laughs> like, but it really that's what you're that's what you're being asked to do, right? So then what you do is you have to make sure that what's on that paper is. Really, really, really indicative of what you'd like to have happen, right? It, that it gives incredibly specific instructions about how to realize the thing that you heard in your head when you heard it in your head.
0: Is it open to interpretation at all? Well, it
2: is. And but here's the interesting thing. the amount of room between what you write and what ends up happening, that's the interesting thing. And with contemporary music, I mean, there there's so many different paths out of it, right? Where there there are people who give enormous amount of freedom. Cage being a great example. Or there's a way that you can argue that all of Yoko Ono's instructions, like in Grapefruit or whatever, are scores, right? Because that's it's it's an instruction that you deal with in your own. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful book. It's a great thing. yeah So for me, there's, there's that, and then then on the other hand you know, there are detailed instructions that you can give, right? Super complicated things where you say, okay, I want you to hold the flute like this, and I want you to top that there and do this. And you can get into that mode too. So if we set up a binary, which is completely false, it is only existing in this room and don't tell anyone, um, you know, for me, there's, there's a sweet spot somewhere kind of closer to the, the hy- hypernotated thing. But again, drawing it back to food, if you read medieval uh, cookery, Mm. Don't don't
0: often do that.
2: The form of curry you should read this. It's amazing. (laughs) It's it's really worth doing. There's a there's a Gutenberg text. It's like you know just just read it. The the recipes are like take a cape on, stick it in water, stuff it with spices, and serve it. Mm. Right. It's great, but it's like you know now we would expect you know a three page thing with like Nigella Lawson like telling us where to get the thing and like what the close-ups and the the close-ups and the the salt crystals and where you know where to put. And so you know for for musicians. I always feel like they appreciate something that's detailed with room, right? That's detailed on the page to indicate that I know what I'm talking about, but with room for them to continue the conversation when I'm dead or when I'm not in the room. So I, I always try to be as specific as I need to be without ever being like, to cook this, stand facing the stove, lift your left hand out where you were meant to have put the salt. Dude, I mean, and, the, and there are scores that are like that, and the, those things can be wonderful, but there's a control freakishness. To it,
0: I read that the first time you listened to Steve Reich's music for eighteen musicians, you had an immediate, visceral, and emotional reaction to the repetition and the pattern making, and you felt that it sounded like how your head worked.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. What struck me about that piece specifically, and what still strikes me about that piece, I and mean, that piece changed my life. It's the best thing that ever happened. Changed right? my life. Just the other day, I was I was walking in London. And I, I left dinner with two friends, and they went one way, and I went the other way. And I was walking by just a building. It was at 11 o'clock at night. And someone in there was 200% playing music for 18 musicians. Like, it was so quiet. But you hear it immediately, and you're like, I know you exactly know. And I, So, of course, I put my ear up to the thing, and I took a little video. The thing about that piece is that there's a million things going on at once. But it's also incredibly simple. And this is something that, that Steve Reich talks about sort of implicitly, but it's music that's existing for me at two different speeds. And it's, it's the, for me, the, the visceral experience is one of like flying over a landscape, right? And it feeling, the, the feeling of speed, but then also the feeling of incredible detail so it's like you're, it's like you're at a distance, but also incredibly close. So there's a way that you can argue that, that piece is is very, very slow, right? It's just these eleven chords that then you kind of zoom into the chord and see who's inside, and then you zoom out and then you zoom in, and it, you know, you can say that the hour is just these big breaths, right? And that's it. These gigantic kind of camera moves, right? Yeah. And then you can argue that it's all this little, this little kinetic information that is interlocking and precise. And um, you know, what's also great about that piece is, despite its precision, there, there's a lot of um, flexibility in terms of how, how long you repeat things, who's in charge, right? So there's kind of, you know, it's so you wait for these clarinets to finish this thing and then you move on and then, you, then the vibraphone does this and then you move on. So it's a kind of community exercise. And the first time I heard it, I just thought that, that it was such a beautiful and impossibly precise analysis of what it feels like to listen in general.
0: Mm, that's exactly what i was hoping you'd say
2: okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't say that cuz you weren't like holding no, up signs no no you
0: you were able to articulate something that i've wondered you know mm. what is it about this piece that's so transformative because yep. the first time you hear it it does change the Your way you sense, listen to yep. music I wanted to ask you what kind of composer you consider yourself to be, and then I read an interview you did with Molly Sheridan on New Music Box, and you explained that while you consider yourself a classical music composer that does not preclude you from working within a variety of musical genres, and you stated, it's essentially like being from somewhere. I feel like I'm very proudly from the classical tradition. It's like being from Nebraska. You're from there if you're from there. It doesn't mean that you can't have a productive life somewhere else. The notion of your genre being something that you have to actively perform, I think, is pretty vile. (laughs) <laughs> You're laughing. That's funny. It's, a, it's a
2: great it's a great line, right?
0: It makes sense. Yeah, I, I stand by it. Why do we need to pigeonhole art? Why do we need to be able to signify where something comes from or where it's supposed to go or what's supposed to happen next?
2: I don't know. I mean, I you know, my, the radical interpretation is that it's this kind of proto-colonial thing where it's like you, you, know, you have to make a taxonomy of the thing so that you can kill it and control it. <laughs> like if, you know, if you if you want to get super kind of postcolonial about it, I think that's probably what it is in the hands of musicologists who don't know better or who do know better but you know don't want to need act to cla- right. Need to classify things, yeah. And I think you know it's it's a shorthand and and compose as musicians. We play into it too, where people can say like, oh, I hear the like wide open skies of Vermont in the music, or you know, with with Lamont Young, it's like you know, surely that the the expanses of the West are, are the influence and you know there's a, there's a there's a way in which that's just it's too easy and again as i said it's there's no there's no shame in being like this is where i come from but this is where i live and there's definitely no shame in in wanting to experiment one wanting to play with that tradition so for, so for me again the classical music tradition can mean a million different things but it's the tradition in which you know i i cut my teeth like i you know i, I write stuff down and then the thing is the minute you say i write stuff down the people are like well jazz is written down too you know Yes we're we're all we're all working with moving definitions in in a fluid way and a great way to waste 3 hours of your day is to try to answer like what's the difference between a musical and an opera like if you if you want to spend 3 hours doing that that's great just don't call me
0: <laughs> duly noted <laughs> You turn the classical music industry on its head with the way you do things, the way that you think, the influences that you've had on your work and the influence you're having on others. Speaking of influence, in your second album, Mother Tongue, some of the sounds included a pair of butcher knives scraping against each other, a recording of whistling Icelandic wind and the sound of raw whale flesh slopping around a bowl, someone taking a shower, someone else eating toast and the frying of an egg. Can you talk about how you decide to choose the instruments you
2: use? Sure. I should I should point out, you know, that I, I appreciate your kind words, but this is not This is not nothing new. I mean, mu- music, I know. it is the work of the ancestors that allowed me the freedom to, to do that, right? And it's Cage and before. I know. And Gershwin and anyway. So, you know, with with that particular piece, um, Mother Tongue, I was trying to create an archive of a language and an archive of a space. And the glory of an archive for me, like a library being a great example, is not going in order, right? You don't move from A to A to B to C. You kind of, you're like, what's this, what's this, what's this, right? And you, the eye is drawn to things. not I don't want to say by random because the eye is drawn to what it's drawn to, and that's important, but it, sometimes it's the cover, it's the smell, it's the this, it's the, where it is, it's the position, it's the word, it's the name of the Dutch composer, whatever it is. So with that piece, I wanted to open up the actual instrumental possibilities to the, now, I don't want to say the random, but to the wild and to, and to the to the moments when, we find ourselves obsessing over or when i say we i mean me specifically obsessing over little little nuggets of language obsessing over things like you know i before e except for c like when do those things pop into your into your mind and for me it's always when you're going about your daily tasks we don't think in sentences in our head i at least i don't i'm not thinking like you know i will walk to the stove and do this thing instead there's a little repetitive thing that's going on in a in a you know slightly crazy way that's something I heard, a scrap of a thing, and then I'm making toast and thinking about something else, and then that pivots really quickly to the noise of the dog outside. And you know so I I wanted to see if I could sort of I could sort of musicalize that. So that, that album was an experiment in in folding in those sounds, seemingly drawn at random, into like what's what's otherwise a pretty traditional, like multi-voice kind of merit. not I say tradition, but sort of a Meredith Monk texture.
0: Yes. It's a wonderful, wonderful album. For lack of a Thank better you. way to to reference it. Thanks very much. Um you are the youngest composer to have ever been commissioned by the Metropolitan Opera. Two Boys, which was released it's about two years now, right? Yeah, two it was performed ago? in 2013. So close to three yeah. years, yeah. Um it was released to great fanfare. Um <laughs> it was your first large-scale opera. The New Yorker praised Two Boys as a bright-hearted, fearless work and declared that you handled this lurid story with thoughtfulness and compassion. And the story combines two elements rarely seen on the operatic stage, a police procedural and a dramatization of the mysterious and lonely lives of those who inhabit the darkest corners of the internet. Why did you pick this topic matter?
2: I'm gl- I'm glad that it read as being a very new thing because in my head it was actually a very old thing. Um going You just, mean an epic story? No, well not not even just even specifically like if you zoom way out of a lot of the great operas. And so let's say Partenope or or Così fan The Mozart Così fan where the where the basic premise is that these there's a two women and they have fiancés and that the fiancés are kind of tricked into testing the women's fidelity, and the fiancés then pretend that they're going off to the army, and they come back and they swap right, and they dress as Albanians, whatever that like means. sounds like a
0: Shakespeare play.
2: Right. Well, this is right. This is an old story, right? <laughs> yeah. they, they dress as quote unquote Albanians in order to trick the women to see if they'll be unfaithful, right? You know, and then of course the women fall in love with them or whatever, and the Mozartian sort of da Ponte that geniuses, they tell each other things that they would never be able to tell each other in their normal context, which is the most online thing. Right. That, and that to me, it's like the modern condition of that. It's also I mean, this is the oldest story, right, where, where you you can tell someone a deeper, darker truth when you're in costume than you can in face to face. And so that that to me is is what happens in Two Boys, where there's this younger boy who, who's in some kind of love infatuation thing with this older boy. But because of the situation that they find themselves in, in the north of England in the in the 90s, he's not about to say that. But he can say whatever he wants if he pretends to be all these different people. So he can have a sexually aggressive relationship with the older boy. He can have a seductive relationship. He can have a kind of predator-prey relationship. And he can say exactly what he wants. So that to me was the kind of the kind of fun of that, which is to say, the internet is allowing us to deliver to ourselves the same drug that's we, that we've had in Shakespeare, that we've had in in Mozart, that we've had really since the beginning of drama, right? And then also, I love SVU, so <laughs> so I was you like, and me both. I know. I would listen. I you know, there was a new one on last night, and literally like one of the things that I have to do tonight is watch it because for me I it yet the great I, right for me SVU is this cultural gift, right? Because it's it's this perfect thing that almost almost always have this has the same structure. And once a week, you can obey this kind of... It, again, it, it reminds me a bit of church, actually, because it's like exactly an hour and 15 minutes long. This always happens. The Eucharist happens at this moment. It's organized, right? And SVU for me is... I, I don't know why we all as a culture find it so satisfying, but I think it's because we love a sex crime but we love things being put to right and we also love a slightly sadistic relationship with our own relationship with the police yeah and and we, it
0: makes us feel safe
2: and and that's what's interesting about it is even though it's like lifting up the edge of the carpet and underneath is all this kind of sex crime it calls attention to the complexity of the of the city and world in which we live yes and that's what's great about how explicitly the rip from the headlines thing is and that's what I would try to do in two Boys as well yes. was take this real story and you know modify it for the stage enough that Craig and I didn't get sued and interestingly, with with those stories, you know, and a lot of the things that people said to us after the workshops of Two Boys, they were like, it's not realistic. We were like, OK, number one, it literally happened. Number two, someone said, it's not possible the policewoman at that time wouldn't know what a server is. I'm like, hello? Hashtag Hillary Clinton. Like, whatever. It's like like these, these things are very easily misunderstood by people older than me.
0: You have a new commission from the Metropolitan Opera. They've commissioned you to compose Marnie for its 2019-2020 season based on Winston Graham's 1961 novel that was adapted into an amazing Alfred Hitchcock movie who is going to play Marnie I can't Ooh, I wish I, can't I wish I could tell you anybody but Tippi Hedren in
2: that Yeah right role. well we're I mean I think we're we're getting the operatic equivalent we have a very a very glamorous but I can an- announce in advance that I'm not going to enjoy the same um twisted relationship that, that Hitchcock did with her. I think that's... And one of the things that, that I find so interesting about, about Hitchcock's adaptations and, the, and the, the stories to which he was drawn is the sexual sadism that's behind almost all of his films. Yes. It becomes much, much more explicit after The Birds. I mean, with M- Marnie, it's incredibly explicit. And that whole kind of psychoanalysis scene, I was like, you know... But for me, the, the, the allure of what, he, what he's obsessed with... I mean, I've, al- I've always said that the best chamber opera in the world would be Rope right? Because rope is such a twisted thing. Yeah. And you get, you get two countertenors, three countertenors, and you just put them in a box and shake them up. And yeah. anyway, so if, if, any of you, if any of you take this idea, you heard it here first, just credit me.
0: <laughs> the last thing I want to talk to you about is your writing. You're so known for your music and your composing that I think that your writing gets really put under the radar. It is phenomenal. So you wrote this about Beyoncé. Let me tell you a story about my phone. Four times in the last few years, it has made a certain series of noises. My current theory is that the noises are generated when a critical mass of gays text one another at the same time. The first time, it was when Michael Jackson died and I was in a fever dream in St. Petersburg, Russia, having just interviewed the homeless-looking and possibly insane conductor Valery Gurdjieff. The second time, it was when Whitney died, and I was absurdly having gnocchi with certain friends, and then other friends rang, and we had to pull the whole evening over to be together in this time of need. The third time, it was when I got off a plane last week in Rome, and I thought to myself, girl, not Janet, not tonight. It was a false alarm. It was just that English diver announcing that he was fucksing a man. What is this thing you have with Beyoncé?
2: <laughs> I mean, I think Beyoncé's on top of it. She's the best.
1: <laughs> um,
2: I think that album, when we look back on... On the, the relics of our civilization after the great water wars, I think I think that album is going to be a really a really big turning point about what an album is. You know, I mean, she she can get away with it, but I think you know it, it, it changed everything. Like you you put together this this collection of things and you just drop it into the world, and I think that that she's had enormous success with that since that time too, with like the formation video et cetera. And I think what she's up to is this wonderful thing of as a performer, as a singer, but as a curator. You know, she's getting sort of the best people in the world together and putting them together in, in unexpected ways, and that album was just so thrilling because there was no hype about it. There was nothing about it. It just appeared on her, on your hard drive, um, and I think with her platform, she has the ability to really push things, um, which I think we, we've seen in the last in the last year. Yeah. And you know, it's again this weird combination of a thing that I find to be completely commercial and and mainstream, and also weirdly subversive in ways that I think we'll figure out in in you know twenty five years, and completely calculated but also improvised like you can't you can't have predicted the influence and the and the impact specifically politically of a lot of those things so I, and I just feel like it's so rare to have that experience just viscerally to have an album turn up and be like whoa that was awesome right and I think I think we're seeing that coming out of the R&ampB and b and hip hop worlds much more explicitly Yeezus being a great example of like I yes. think one of the top expressions of mania in our time right I mean there's th- that the breathlessness and the digital silence and the whole that whole universe is really Again, I think it's going to change everything. But I think with Beyoncé, she's not announcing herself as a revolutionary, right? I think she's just kind of putting pressures on this thing in a really interesting way. Nico, I think you just described yourself. (laughs) You're too kind. I should should be one-sixth of Beyoncé.
0: Well, you are (laughs) extraordinary. You have a brand-new CD collaboration with Philip Glass, and that is called Music for Two Violins. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks so much. Nico Muley, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
2: Pleasure was mine. Thanks.
0: To find out more about Nico Muley and what he's up to, go to nicomuley.com. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City.